0: What is culture? Um, It's complicated. It's hard working with humans. (laughs) Being (laughs) a human is hard. Ugh, this is such a loaded question.
1: Welcome, Shireen. We're Hi. so happy to have you. Nice to see you. How are
0: you doing today? I'm wonderful. Even better being with you too. How are you? Both. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, Shireen. So we have known you for, um, I guess, a little while, a few years. But, but you know what? I don't. I don't know if Thule knows this, but I don't really know your story of how you got into what you're doing. Like, I, I don't know your journey. So we'd love first, like, can you tell us a little bit about who is Shireen and uh, how you got here?
0: Yeah, loaded question. Uh, <laughs> who am I? So I'll start with how, how I got here because okay. is a really loaded question. Um, So I obviously met in the Northwestern program. I'll tell you how I got there. So I majored in psychology in college. Um, I really only did that because I had no idea what I wanted to do and I was running out of majors and or I was running out of prereqs. And my counselor was like, You have to pick a major, you need to take a break from school. And I was like, I guess I should pick a major. So I decided I was going to do psychology because I thought I wanted to be a child psychologist. And then I realized I have overactive tear ducts and I could never sit in front of a child who was like expressing any problems without crying. So I was like sharp pivot. Definitely can't do that. Wow. Yeah.
2: At what point did you discover that? Did you have like an internship or something and then and children were talking to you? No, you...
0: no, no. I just honestly, like I watch like, Fox and the hound. And I would like cry for a week or like, I watch American idol. If I watch the voice goodbye, if, like four chairs, turn around. I'll, I'll be sobbing like beside yes. myself. And those are like happy moments. So I'm like, forget the sad moments. There's like, no way I could do this. Even if a kid, if a kid was like, I have the best life, I'd probably be sobbing. So I was like, oh. I cannot do this. So <laughs> great, great start. So I graduate and, um, When I was an undergrad, I did not do any sort of like research in psychology, which obviously a lot of people who wanted to get a master's in it had done that. So I applied for a research position at the University of Michigan in um, really like supporting PhD students in org change. And so I did that for a year and it was essentially 40 hours a week of just reading like white papers and HBR articles and coding um, and then we would meet for one hour a week to collaborate. And after doing that for a year, as introverted as I am, I was like, get me as far away from this as humanly possible. And so my mom was like, you're lost. And I was like, I'm lost. That is an accurate statement. So, <laughs> Thanks, I, mom. <laughs> yeah. She's like, I'm going to get you a career coach. And I was like, sure. Sounds great. Mm. So... I got a career coach and I like to say like a lot of lost souls, I ended up in marketing and advertising, which at the time I was like, <laughs> That's so cool. I was like working on Coca-Cola. I was getting Starbucks every morning, like had no concept of anything. I just was like living the dream life, working at an agency, whatever.
2: Very busy, right? You were very busy all the time.
0: So busy. <laughs> um, like so yeah, and just like I thought I was so cool. And I would go into the office like a couple of times. I went in on Saturday and I was like, I'm the hardest working person on the planet. <laughs> and then I was like, this is not for me. Um, and I ended up moving to Chicago. I stayed with that company, but when I got to Chicago after like six months, got a new job also in marketing and technology and did that for a couple years and then I really started to realize that like, I did not love the work, but I liked the people aspect of it. Like I knew everything about my teammates and I was always like, you know, asking them questions about like, what do they want to work on? What do you like? And so I was talking to a friend about it and she was like, you should look at this Northwestern program. So I was like, okay, sounds great. So Mm -hmm. looked into it and she was like, basically like an MBA, but like getting the work done through people. And Mm. despite having like researched a lot of that, when I was at U of M, I must have like blocked that out because it was a whole new concept to me. I was like, wait, there's like work where you can just care about people, but like help them drive the business. And so I applied for Northwestern and I did not tell a soul because I had really bad imposter syndrome. And then I got in and then my whole life changed. And that was, and this
2: we should say this is, I mean, just for those of those you know those thousands of you who are not part of the program that all three of us <laughs> went to this is the masters uh, uh in learning and organizational change at, at Northwestern University yes yeah.
0: um so i started that in january of 19 i got my certificate my coaching certificate while i was doing the program graduated from that in march of 2020 mm-hmm. and then march of 21 i graduated from the masters program And at the time I was still lost, like no idea what I'm going to do. I was still working at that technology company. Um, and somebody from the program, Lindsay approached me and asked me if I wanted to start a business with her doing coaching. And I was like, me, like, you want to start a business with me? she's like, yes, I would like to do that. And so (laughs) we were going to start doing coaching and we actually got, um, we were going through our final class together in, I think it was January. It was a practicum and we did a culture analysis for Facebook through like the 460 class. And we got to like design a culture survey and interview them. And I had just completed my capstone research on culture. And so we were like, we totally love this work. This is very cool. This is absolutely something we could do. So we started doing that. We were doing a little bit of coaching. And then we had this like really big dream that when we finally made it, we would start doing workshops and Now, honestly, the majority of the stuff that I do is workshops. (laughs) So yeah, we were like, we definitely needed bigger, scarier dreams. Um, yeah, since February of 21, Uh I've been doing the whole entrepreneur thing and everything that we built now I'm doing it alone. Lindsay took a step back from the business. Um, she's still a consultant to the business and she's wonderful in all the things, um, really came from like a lot of the pain that we had experienced at organizations. So culture analysis was, how do we hear all of the voices of people at organizations? So instead of like leadership solving problems in a vacuum, how can we understand what's going on at the bottom? Why is this happening? How do we hear from everybody? And then from like a workshops and courses perspective, when I got promoted to first time manager, I was so lost. And it's such a weird time because you go from having lunch with people who then start reporting to you the next day. And it's just a very weird transition. And we had some development, but it wasn't this like very thorough, long, you know, course. And then they're sort of like, okay, you're off to the races. And I was like, no, yeah, I, this is like not going very well for me. So we built that. And then now we have this Gen Z course, which I'm sure we're going to get into more details about Gen Z, but that's my story of how I ended up here. Now it's been, Two years of being an entrepreneur, which is such a weird word that I still am. Like, am I? But I am.
2: That's great. I mean, yeah, you're 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 doing the thing. You're you're an organizational consultant. You teach workshops. You're doing culture, certain stuff, assessment, surveys, all that. It's great. Yeah.
0: Not That's... sitting in front of kids and crying. So it's definitely <laughs> a better it was a better place for me. Do you ever cry
2: yeah. while while conducting a uh, a culture?
0: I have cried on the way home from workshops before because I've been like so happy, but not from like culture stuff, but I've just been like so fulfilled. Like one time I had to pull over on the side of the road. I was like really crying. It was a lot. That's
1: cool. Yeah,
0: Yeah. it was a very weird. I was like, what is wrong with me? And then I was like, I cannot get onto the highway like this. So I have to pull over and just like let it out and (laughs) carry on with my life. So yeah.
2: I, I have a bunch of questions here, but I want to start with yeah. this. You you mentioned uh, before, I believe you mentioned that you were an introvert. Um, yeah. You also give workshops. That's a lot of what you do. Um, you know a lot of people, I think, at least. Um, I, I'm just curious what you mean by, uh, by an introvert.
0: Yeah, I think more so like I, I mean, Alma's probably not surprised to hear that, but just really like. I really, truly do get energy from being alone. Like I, and I know extroverts need their alone time, but like I could be left alone for two weeks and I would be so happy. So <laughs> it, after I run workshops, I truly like best kept secret. I have to take a nap. I'm like, I've given all the energy away and it's amazing and I love it, but like it it does take a lot out of me.
1: Mm. Yeah,
2: that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. So and okay. So l- let's move to culture for a second. We talked a little bit about, about culture, organization. What what is culture?
0: What is culture? Um, simply put, culture is the way that we do things around
1: here. Thank you for the shoulder movements. Yeah. I would like to point that out to those of you who are only listening. Sure yeah, moved her shoulders around. Yes. Yeah. The way we I think in, in the MBA, they call that a shimmy. No, yeah. No. Oh, a shimmy, a shimmy.
0: <laughs> you learn this at um, No, I think it's, you know, I mean, it's funny because I say it's the way we do things around here, but I really do think that's the easiest way of explaining what it is. It's like when we say things like artifacts and it's like, what, like, what is that? So I think it's, you know, when I walk in, I learn what's right, what's wrong, what's appropriate, what's not, what type of behavior gets rewarded. What? Um, What is, you know, there's one thing to have the talk, but like, the walk is the culture. So that's sort of how I think about everything that's happening under within an organization.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's great. And do you find so when you when you go into an organization, and you do a culture assessment, um, do you find that they like organizational leaders are pretty aware of what their culture is? Or are they generally surprised to learn certain things about their culture?
0: I think it depends. I would say the companies that are really in tune with it, first of all, I would say have a more proactive approach. So instead of saying like, we have high attrition, we need you to come do a culture analysis. They're like, we want to get a pulse on what's going on. A lot of times those companies will already have like a list of priorities and a pretty good idea of like what they might need to improve on. And when we run the culture analysis, sometimes it helps them, reprioritize things so they might be like oh that wasn't like priority number one it wasn't even in like the top five but based on the data we're realizing that like that is where we should put our efforts to move the needle other companies yeah there's a lot of surprise like uh, you know some companies will be like it's pay and then we run this survey and it's like it's not pay
2: can you can you give an example maybe of of us of a, of a surprise that that you once encountered
0: Yeah. I think, you know, one of the things that's funny about culture surveys is people are always like, I want to put a pay question in there. And I'm like, I, you can do whatever you want. You're the client. (laughs) I do not advise that. Right. If you were going to ask me, like, are you satisfied with your pay? Unless I started like a month ago, I'm probably going to say no. Right. I'm not going to give like a five out of five. It's like, if you're asking, I'd take more. So (laughs) I don't ever advise on putting that in there and I always say if it's a problem, it will come up like there are open ended questions right where we say anything else or what would it take to keep you here. Trust me if it's a problem it's going to be a theme like people aren't just gonna be like okay I'll bring this up at another time. Um, So. I think one of the biggest discrepancies is sometimes we see people are like, oh, it's going to be pay. And can you do like a competitive, you know, like a comp analysis? And I'm like, first of all, no, that's not what I do. But if you need it, we'll find out through the survey. And then there's people who do that for a living and you should probably pull them in if it comes up that much. A lot of the times what we see is it's professional development. So people don't see a career path for themselves at the company. And while organizations are really focused on like, well, you know, they don't think that we have competitive pay and they want more money. Yeah, of course people want more money. Like who's going to say, no, I'm good, you know, but usually what we see is professional development, um, oftentimes relationships directly with the manager. Sometimes something that comes up more often than you'd expect is like how decisions are made or how they're communicated. So it's always, I don't want to say funny, but like when we present those, we're like, and in the open-ended questions, pay came up, 5% of the time, but only like, you know, only 30% of people feel that they have a, a trajectory here to grow for the next five years.
1: Yeah. How have you tackled the challenge of then helping the business leaders really buy into the idea that it's worth investing in culture? with all of its intangibles and, and that it's even possible to change it.
0: Great question. Um, probably an unconventional answer to be totally honest, just because I, I am an entrepreneur. So like, I don't have to take on those projects if, you know, if it's going to be an uphill battle. And I feel very like hesitant to say that, but one of the things I tell people all the time is like, the idea is to do business with people who believe what you believe. So if I'm going to come in there, you know, if you tell me I want to run a culture analysis, and then I say, here are the things that we recommend that you measure. Cause we have a pretty standardized um subset of questions. So we measure, we call it me, we us. So we measure the individual level, the team level, and then the organizational level. So that really gives us like, a pulse of everything going on, right? How do I see myself in the organization? How are my skills developed? But then how do I work within my team? That's also where we have like manager questions. And then how do I see the organization at large? Like do leaders walk the talk? Do I believe in the mission? Do I know the mission? Um, So if I present that and somebody has a reaction to it and they're like, well, we don't want to like ask, you know, that question. If they don't believe what I believe, you know, that we need to get to the actual root cause it's probably not the right fit you know and i i sound more hesitant in that than like i mean but you know fine go go work with somebody else it's also it's your dollars it's my time and also my integrity right like if you you're going to be measuring me on this and then you're also going to be you know telling people about it and if you come back and say nothing changed well right we didn't solve the right problem. So yeah, nothing changed. So I feel like from that sense, it's yeah, it's like unconventional in the sense that I can say, like, I don't really have to deal with that, which is really nice. And I've been very lucky to work with companies who are very great about wanting to assess their culture and being very intentional about it and knowing the return on it. So that is not something that I really have to It's not an uphill battle for me. The, I will say like sometimes some of the results, nobody's ever had like a really bad reaction to the results, but more so surprised. And obviously, as you know, with like change management professionals, sometimes you just have to sit in that space with them, right? Like, okay, you, you know, you thought that you had a really collaborative team and we're finding, let's say we assess it and break it down by department. and, And we're finding that that's not really the case what is that bringing up? Like, where is there truth to that? Where, you know, it's a lot easier with numbers. Like people can't really refute the data. When we do qualitative analysis, it's a lot easier to be like, well, that's your perception. It's like, well, these these are numbers. So, you know, um, I, I thankfully knock on wood have not had any like very bad experiences, more so just difficult conversations, which I understand when you manage a team, it's very personal to get, feedback that you're doing anything that's not exemplary right
1: yeah what do you think that's a good answer this is this is the the advantage of being an entrepreneur i wish i i I don't i don't know quite how you learned that lesson in only two years (laughs) like that's it that's very wise um i wish i could have talked to you like eight years ago there are definitely some clients i wouldn't have taken on (laughs) but i did not have that mindset so very wise, very wise answer. What we going to say,
2: Well, I, I was just gonna ask you, Shireen, um, what what do you think that's all about? That this that discrepancy between what a manager thinks they know about their team or what an organizational leader thinks they know about the organization and what's actually going on?
0: Ugh, this is such a loaded question. That's such a good one. Um okay. let me preface by saying that. I really like, if we look at it from this like appreciative lens and we really think let's give managers the benefit of the doubt, because honestly, being a manager is so hard and less and less people want to be managers. And I do not blame them. It is, it was very rewarding for me. But now when people are like, I want to be an individual contributor for life. I'm like, I support that. And I don't really <laughs> understand where you're coming from. So let's give them like the benefit of the doubt that they really are doing the best that they can with the tools that they have. I think a lot of times managers feel like I really have to lead with like this sense of optimism and like I don't want to say anything negative. And like if I um you know, if I admit what's in front of me, then like that's negative. And so they take on this lens where like they lead with that positivity to think that they're protecting their team, right? The problem is <laughs> your team sees a problem. And thinks one of two things they either think we have a problem and my manager doesn't know which is a really big issue or we have a problem and my manager knows but thinks i'm too dumb to know and so it's like you kind of have this lose-lose scenario so i think one of the like biggest hurdles is and and like managers are trying to solve this problem in a vacuum right so you know, let's say that people at the bottom, you have really high attrition or like you're hemorrhaging. And they're like, we don't want to ask the people at the bottom why they're leaving because we don't want to acknowledge that people are leaving. And it's like, but people know that their peers are leaving. So you either acknowledge it, you know, or it continues to happen. And so then I think they try to solve this problem in this like echo chamber, where, you know, one person presents an idea and another one presents an idea, but really like without bringing in the person who is being affected, they aren't able to solve that problem. So, and I say that saying, I really think that they're doing the best that they can. And they're like, this is, this is how we protect our people. This is how we remain optimistic. This is how we like, you know, show people that we're going to move forward despite whatever, but it never works i'm still like a little bit perplexed on why people still do that but if you have an answer let me know
1: <laughs> i my mind just all oh, i'm i'm uh deep in my capstone right that is about narratives and mm-hmm. so the first thing that came to mind is that there's there's still big like overarching corporate narratives about what a leader what a good leader does and we haven't, even though there are, you know, authors out there and there's research out there about psychological safety and vulnerability and all of these things that are kind of trending, I don't think we're at the point where we've actually changed the mm-hmm. narrative, right? Yeah. The 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 capital N narrative about what a good leader does. And so even if they, even if, you know, they're, they're listening to Simon Sinek and to Bre- Brene Brown and they're listening to Adam Grant and everything, it, feels like you're going against bigger values, um, to actually be vulnerable and admit that you did it. Because I think, I think those leadership stories that we have, at least in the United States have been going on for centuries, centuries.
0: (laughs) And I will say too, like, listen, being a manager and asking somebody like, what do you want? That's really scary because if they're like, I want, I don't want to be in this role. I want to move to like X team. Okay. Well, you're not a genie, you know? So like asking somebody what they want is a very scary thing, right? If I'm like, what do you want for dinner? And you're like, I want authentic Colombian food. And I'm like, that doesn't exist in Chicago. And now I opened a box of worms. I mean, obviously it exists, but like now I opened this box of worms asking you what you wanted, and I can't deliver on it. So I think there's this like, really terrifying aspect of being a manager where it's like, as soon as I open my mouth and invite that conversation, I don't know what's going to come of it. And then like, it's almost like I can't claim ignorance. Not that I think that managers are trying to be ignorant, but it's like, once, you know, then there's this added pressure of like, oh, now I know. And I don't know if I can solve that. With that said, I think there's so much power in, as a manager saying, I totally hear you. I would like to get you one step closer to that, whatever that is. I don't know that I'm going to be able to solve that exact problem. Or here's what I know, here's what I can share, and here's what I can't share yet, but I will when I have details, right? It's like, I just want to feel, you know, as, I just want to feel like I'm in the
1: loop. Mm -hmm. That's a great point.
2: Yeah, so I'm I'm hearing you say that one quality that, good managers share or something that some that some that people to do can do to be a good manager is to listen and to to really really listen any anything else come to mind that you've seen that really great managers do
0: i think one thing that's like that i'm always really impressed with and it's top of mind because i was having a conversation with somebody about it yesterday is if your organization is going through a major change and it doesn't what you like what constitutes a major change for you is not necessarily what's a major change for somebody else, right? So let's say that, you know, I'm a team manager and somebody below me leaves and it's like, yeah, that's kind of a bummer. But like, for the people who reported to that said person, that might be a really big change for them. So how do I like, understand what's going on there understand the magnitude of maybe that change for that person? And then what can I do? So even like, Let's have 30 minute conversations twice a week, every morning. And let's just stop the rumor mill, bring whatever questions you have. Let's have a very transparent conversation. I think there's a lot that happens. And obviously that's like a smaller scale change, right? Let's talk about, honestly, the context that this was in yesterday was in the context of WeWork and, um, you know, they were like, was like the great rise and then the great fall. And the person I was talking to Sydney May, who was in the program, she mentioned that every morning for, I think, 30 minutes, as soon as everything happened with like the IPO, her manager set up time and said, here's what I can tell you. Here's what I can't tell you yet, but when I have more details and I'm able to share, I will tell you. And it's like, that to me is such a go slow to go fast model. Like from 9 to 9.30, you're having a conversation so that from 9.30 on, you can continue working. Whereas the teams that aren't having those conversations are spinning the rumor mill. They're spiraling, they're gossiping, right? And then it's like, you actually have like negative business implications.
1: Yeah, Yeah.
2: that's good to hear because I I mean, I guess with WeWork, it could depend on location, but I happen to know uh, of certain WeWorks and I'm a fan of WeWork. I I use WeWork, uh, but I happen to know of certain WeWorks where the culture is just incredibly toxic Um, and uh, yeah. So yeah. it sounds like a good practice.
0: Well, and it was interesting, too, because it's like, you know, her talking about WeWork, that was a really big part of her identity. But also just seeing, like, the way that that was handled still gave her such a positive impression of the overall organization. When you guys know we've all been through change where, like, the way it was handled changes everything about, right? Like, everything that happened before it might as well be wiped clean because the ending was awful.
2: Right. Yeah. I also I want to I want to uplift something that you said before Alma, um, which is about about narrative and, the, and, and and one of the reasons why you're studying narrative. And I think for me, when I hear that and, and something I've been reflecting on is that it's just another way of saying that human beings are very, very complex. And we tell ourselves stories and there are things that we believe based on our culture. And 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 these things are um, are just are not simple. There's no like simple answer. Mm -hmm. and and that's why i think it's great like by understanding a narrative or a narrative that a team has or a narrative that a company has um you get to understand something very complex that's why it's one of the
1: reasons why we love stories isn't it i mean it's our primary vehicle for making meaning of our life ours as in all human beings the way each human being in different cultures does it is perhaps a little bit different but yeah it's it's the main way that we make sense of things and so going back to what you were saying Shireen, about um the rumor mill so the another another principle that comes from i guess you could say the strands of of psychology that are interested in narrative as as an approach um is that human beings <laughs> When they only get certain pieces of a story, because all all of our brains know that there's like a beginning, a middle, and an end. Without getting into any big details, like every story has characters, <laughs> there's some type of conflict, and then you know something happens. There's an end. So the the we work example you give is really powerful because uh, of what that ma- that particular manager did. Because it was I don't know if he or she understood the principle. But basically, if we have parts of a story, we are incapable as human beings, right? We're basically incapable of not filling in the blanks somehow, right? right? And so we have to understand that human beings are making meaning of things. And so if you are a leader and there's this whole story going on about the IPO and everything, like the human beings on your team, are not gonna be like, oh, I'm not gonna think about it and I'm just gonna assume the best. <laughs> no, we all just like, buff. I think our brain just goes in and is like. Buff, buff, buff fill in the blank. And then of course, how tragic we are and how we fill in the blanks or whatever that, that depends on other things, but we, but we do it, we do it. And so that's why it's such a powerful thing for a leader to not shy away from difficult conversations. And that transparency thing, like try to give as much information as you can so that they don't have these big gaps, like you said, so that from nine 30 on, they're not filling in gaps. Because, mm-hmm. hum- which is why, I mean, just think about like when, back in the day when we couldn't binge on Netflix and HBO and all of this, and we got a To Be Continued, do you remember when you're watching, do you remember the angst and anger of a To Be Continued?
0: <laughs> honestly such a good, like, it's such a good way of framing it. And I said this earlier today to somebody who said, in the absence of information, we fill in the gaps. And so it's like, there it is. Yeah right you know as much as you're like just you know we've all heard like just don't think about it or like breathe it's like oh I never thought about that I never thought about not thinking about the thing that was stressing me out thank you (laughs) that was like I'll just oh I'll press the off button my bad (laughs) million dollar (laughs) advice you should absolutely be a coach never thought of that before thank you yeah no it's it's such a good point and I could go on like a whole tangent about endings but one of the other things i always say is like a great book can be ruined by a bad ending and so how something ends and i think about this even in terms of like leaving an organization right we always say like leave an organization better than you found it it's like how about an organization leaving a person better than they found it right and like what do we do when companies when we part ways right that's why we see so much scrutiny i mean Look at Google, like Google, Meta, all of these companies are getting such scrutiny for how they parted with employees. And it's like, right. that really tarnishes the whole experience of like everything that led up to it. So that's my other, you know, book analogy, but it's- Good, thank you. <laughs> that was so interesting.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's great. I If you have to do layoffs, and this is a whole other conversation, but research shows- that uh, you should really try to avoid them to the best of your ability it should really really be uh and then if you do have to do them there's also a way to do them right bob sutton stanford did a lot of research on this and um but and re- rarely is it really is it done well and and that's for all sorts of reasons people are scared the legal departments involved um and all that i'm curious if if, if either of you have ever seen a layoff that was done well and if so how was it done
0: I have not seen a layoff done well and I will echo your sentiment there is so much research that layoffs are actually they do not benefit the company in any way like they tarnish reputation they lead to they lead to mental health issues which eventually leads to economic issues which is why you're doing layoffs in the first place generally right but also, there's no return on profit. It's like immediately, maybe your investors are like happy or, you know, the board is happy, but there's no like longevity, there's no gain. So I echo your sentiment there. I would say, have I seen layoffs done well? No. But have I seen other options exercised instead of layoffs? Absolutely. I mean, there's, if you look at Southwest, when they were looking, I think like right with during COVID, they were looking at laying people off. They turned to their employees and said, here's what we have to do. What are some of our other options, right? Or um, there are companies that have done furloughs. They furlough the entire company, right? So when my husband was um, during COVID, his company furloughed everybody for 20%. So everybody took a 20% pay cut and they had one day off a week and they basically operated under this model of like, it's better that all of us hurt a little than some of us hurt a lot. And it's like, that's another great option because eventually, and we'll see it, these companies bounce back and then they have to fill all of those roles. And that's also very costly. So that didn't answer your question about if I've seen layoffs done well, but there are a lot of other options other than layoffs. And I just, it's very hard for me to wrap my mind around.
2: I I totally agree. I I've been thinking about this a lot and, um, you know the w- the way I, the, my current way of thinking about layoffs is that it's like um it's like cutting off a limb you know sometimes people have to get amputated for some reason you know and i mean it's it's the last resort right no one wants to lose god forbid a you know a hand should a be foot. the last resort it, it, it's absolutely the last resort but sometimes it has to be it has to be done to save a person's life so sometimes and and again this is really really last resort um a company will have to do some layoffs in order to save the company um you know but how, did, how it's done I mean and that yeah there are ways to do it you know transparency and with compassion and um you know I know Airbnb did a lot of layoffs uh not, did did a big layoff at the beginning of covid because Airbnb um you know they thought they weren't going to survive and um this is you know before everyone realized like oh I could do covid from wherever and you know and then they started thriving again but like one thing they did is they took their whole hiring department and assigned them to find to help find jobs for everyone that was laid off i mean that's pretty amazing you know um or stuff like that
0: yeah and a lot of companies will offer like those career services and stuff like that but to your point it should be a you know like it should be like an amplification, like last resort but how you know it's funny because people are like what else do you want them to do? It's like, there's a lot of other options, actually. Yeah. I haven't yeah. seen exercised prior to cutting your limb off. So there actually are other things <laughs> you can do, right?
2: 100%, 100%. Um, let's, talk, uh, let's talk a little bit more about toxic cultures. <laughs> you brought that up. I feel like that term is thrown around a lot. This is a topic that's near and dear to my heart. I wrote my capstone on toxic cultures and... Um, in, in a sense, and uh, talk to us about that a little bit. How, 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 how do you think about a toxic culture? What is a toxic culture?
0: Yeah, I think there's, well, I think it's really interesting because right now there's so much research about cultures, which like it was coming anyway, but obviously COVID just like catapulted us in, in that direction. Now there's a lot of research, which if you listen to any, like, if you hear toxic culture, you hear about um, Donald and Charles Saul, they did this research on toxic cultures, and it's like lack of respect and anger and all of these attributes, and it's like makes it seem like toxic cultures are like this outlier. Like we think about them as like yelling and like flipping tables and you know like pounding on like boardroom tables and. Well,
2: one second. That. Is that? I'm sorry to interrupt, but but yeah. are, are we talking about a toxic manager or or like a toxic person or? Like, because those examples of like yelling, is it that, oh, this is a place where just people yell all the time? Or are we talking about like a toxic employee, a toxic manager, perhaps?
0: I mean, I think there's a lot of, when we're, when, when I'm talking about toxic organizations in general, I think when we picture toxic organizations, that's sort of what we picture. Like, we picture these extremes. So it's not necessarily like one person or one manager, but we think about like yeah. walking into work and like no one says hi and, you know, whatever. It's like all, you know, you have this, like, at least for me, I have this vision in my head of like, what a toxic culture is. Right. And if you think about like, let's go, just go back to basic relationships, which really that is what an organization is on a much larger scale. So I always tell people in org change, like any, I want you to think about anything as a relationship that is two people or more, because you can really apply change principles to anything. That's more than one person Well, you can apply it to individuals, but Yeah. If you think about like a traditional relationship and we say, oh, that person's in a toxic relationship, you think about like, you know, I I don't want to like say anything that's going to have this like trigger warning, but like yelling and, you know, whatever. I'm not going to go there, but you can sort of fill in the blanks in your mind. There's a whole other element of like the emotional side to that, right? Like somebody's partner saying like, are you sure you want to wear that? And you'd be like, that is, you know, that is toxic, but it's a way more subtle toxic, right. right? And it that starts to slowly chip away at you, right? And so I think we've we were there with relationships, but we don't think about organizations in that sense. Like we're like, oh, you know, somebody yelled at me or they disrespected me, you know, and maybe this is a manager relationship, but maybe that's the norm at the organization if we're thinking about it from like this toxic yeah. culture perspective. What about cultures where like? you present an idea and somebody says no. And, you know, your manager says no. And then they present it a week later as if it's their idea. Right. When we think toxic culture, we don't necessarily think about that scenario. Or I present an idea 15 times different ideas. And you say, it's not really how we do things around here, but like, keep trying, sweetie. Right. It's Mm -hmm. like, those are like subtly toxic cultures where you start to get this I think about it like a slow drip. Obviously I'm a very visual person. Now I have an analogy for everything, but like, yes,
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm on board. I love it.
0: Slow drip of losing yourself. Right. Like, okay, my ideas aren't good enough. And like, they keep telling me to come to the table with this, but then they don't do that. And I think there's a lot of like subtle toxicity in organizations that don't walk the talk and there's no, people ask me this all the time. Is there a right way to do culture? No, look at Bridgewater, right? They have a radical, you know, radical feedback system where we could be in a meeting. And I'll say, Alma, oh you're not really like, you're not really showing up. Like I give your performance here a D. In another culture, that would actually be toxic. But at Bridgewater, that's very normal. So right. you talk about like- poor Bridgewater. <laughs> yeah, it, it's not for me. I would cry all the time, but like- <laughs> I respect it. Right. Because when you go into the interview, they're not like we give you feedback sandwiches When we want to give feedback. We're going to say something really nice. You know, it's like they tell you this is our our model. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you go into an organization and they're like, we are bottom up innovation, we always listen to people at the bottom, whatever it is, we have so much respect. We never cut people off. And then they they don't do that. Yeah. You start to think it's a reflection of you. right? Right? Because it's not transparent. So I think the problem with those organizations is, and even when you think about like your friends, when they're in relationships where like their significant other yells, they kind of know like, yeah, he, like that person's like a little, you know, like whatever. But when it's so subtle, you become a shell of yourself. And then you're like, I don't really know where I, where it went wrong. And I think that that happens to way more people than we think, because we say like, it's a toxic culture and we have this idea of what it is, but there's so many other more subtle versions of what that looks like.
1: Oh yeah, that's so powerful. I'm so glad we touched on this topic. I also think a lot about subtle, subtly toxic cultures where boundaries, uh, work-life balance boundaries are just like, I think that a place where personally, I think that if your boss to the person you report to writes you at (laughs) 9pm. And I mean, unless you're working in a factory or something, but a standard nine to five job, right? Um, I think that's already indicative of writes you about work, right? Mm -hmm. Writes you about work at 9pm or asks for something or sends emails at 3am and expects others or you start seeing people working at crazy hours and they don't even like, you can change the send time if you really had to work at a crazy time. You know what totally, I mean? I, totally. I do that all the time. Totally. I do it all the time. Yeah. Sometimes I'm like, send later. If I didn't get to it, I'm not letting anyone know that I was on the computer at 9 p.m. I'm hey, sorry. Because do do then do you, they'll do you, think that they can talk to me at that time. No, you can't.
2: <laughs> Alma, do, do, you, do you do what I do and and set it not for, not for 7.30, but for- <laughs> 733, you know, like, they're yeah, like moments.
1: 832.
2: Yeah, exactly. Oh my God, yeah. I would
1: set it
0: for like 530. I'd be like, I'm the most productive. person. <laughs> like I'm up. Well, when really managed, I'm like, yeah, I'm in REM at that time. But I'm like, I want you to think that I have full, you know,
1: So it can tool. be used either way to shape your image. <laughs> That's <our laughs> <Yeah>. point, right.
0: <laughs> That's my narrative. That's not actually what happens. But I'm like, I am a morning person when in reality, I like I'm a lunchtime person. I peak from like 12 to two. And then I'm like, (laughs) pretty much not a morning person, not a night person.
2: So we're getting you now post peak.
0: Yeah. But
2: you're doing great, by the way. 90% of
0: the time. (laughs) You know, I think the it's funny because I have such a reaction to the like late night sending. And this is so, I know this is not normal because I, and I used to do that. Like I would message my team. I would, I also, I think my team members would say the same because I still like go to dinner with them all the time and I'm very close with them. But like, that was never my expectation. And they knew that, you know, like even if I saw them on late, I'd be like, why are you doing this? Sometimes as a manager, your day does not start until like yeah. 3 p.m.,
1: you know? Yeah, and, that's so,
0: legit. and I think it's totally... And I, I like go back and forth on this all the time because I'm like, man, I sent so many <laughs> late night emails and I- You
2: were young.
1: Yeah.
0: Not that young, but <laughs> I mean, I wish I had better boundaries, but it's just, it's a really interesting, you know, it's it's funny because at my, at a job, I got an invite once, it was like 11 p.m. for like an eight o'clock in the morning meeting. And at the time I was in California, Right, right after my husband and I got married, we spent like three months there. And I worked central time. And so my day would start at 7 a.m. This meeting was at 6 a.m. Naturally, it was COVID. If my day started at 7 a.m., I was waking up at like 6.55. Like I wasn't up and, you know, that's so why I would use the early morning feature if I did. Yeah. Uh, I got in, I mean, I literally got yelled at. Like, I can't believe you weren't on the call. That was like so irresponsible. I'm like, you sent the email at 11 p.m.? Like, you sent the calendar invite at 11 p.m. Also, like, like, listen, I'm totally like, you have my number. If you are sending an email for a meeting post hours before the day even starts, send me a text and be like, hey, I hate to do this. And I know that it's early, for whatever it is. But it's like the fact that I got, I mean, it was like an argument. I was like, I'm struggling to apologize in this scenario because like, no that's just like I no yeah. and that is like this like subtly toxic you know the, and that was an extreme example like those conversations yeah. happen often but yeah no I'm not doing yeah. that yes yeah. sorry for that
1: no good I also think of I also think of, okay so violating kind of work-life boundaries and yes as far as what time you send emails and everything I think there's there's a lot of different ways to work, but it's more about the expectations and what is like what behaviors are prized or allowed in an organization and what behaviors are like, hey, I'm flagging this. This isn't, you know. But I think a lot about past, I've seen lots of passive aggressive behavior that that's very subtle. You don't know, are they doing that to me or did it just happen that way? Yeah. Let me, uh, can I give you an example of that? Oh, yeah, of course. Like one one thing, and I wonder
2: what, what both of you think about this, but one thing that has irked me in the past is when if if a manager sends just a calendar invite to a meeting without any context or explanation, all of a sudden, you come to this meeting and you're like, what, what, who, did, am I in trouble? That's always what I think, right? Did I do yeah. something wrong? Should you I know? pack
0: up my stuff on the way right. over?
2: Exactly. Like what? <laughs> what's the deal? Like, and, and so, you know, what what I've tried to do, I mean, if I ever, it's just to be very explicit. I want to meet with you tomorrow about X. Yeah. It's all it takes.
1: Clear communication. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And I think that's like, that's also knowing the person that's sitting in front of you, right? Like anybody who's managed me knows that like, And I tell people this all the time I can swirl myself into another universe. Like I could be on Mars by the time you get a hold of me with stories that I've made up. So, like,
2: back to that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And invite like that would send me into the orbit. Like, I, you know, and so it's like, but maybe somebody who has that type of communication style, you can send that and they're like, okay, yeah, this person probably just wants to chat about whatever. It's like, you know, that's the norm. Yeah. In front of you. Right. So, yeah, if somebody did that to me. I'm like, no, no, I need to know, like in the next five minutes, what is this meeting about? And they're like, oh, I'm, I'm just rescheduling our one-on-one. I'm like, if I didn't ask you, I wouldn't have slept tonight. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I would have been up all night, like freaking out night, night terrors.
2: <laughs> it's no joke. Yeah.
1: Fine. <laughs> So uh, so in your experience now working with companies or or when you were working at uh, a company as an employee um how like how are you trying to help you said, you mentioned that you work with leadership development so how are how do you approach this topic of helping either leaders or employees or business leaders like really give more weight to subtle toxicity within organizations yeah
0: that's a really good question i I honestly have not had this conversation with organizations. Honestly, this has been more so personal conversations. I think the funny thing is a lot of the people I've been having this conversation with are millennials who are seeing like Gen Z not being afraid of job hopping and millennials are like, if I leave my, my CV, my resume, I don't know why I just called it a CV. I've never (laughs) called it a CV. Um, my resume you know and it's like okay but you're a shell of yourself like why would you stay at an organization if you know that this is like bad for your mental health so in terms of like having that conversation with organizations i have not i can't think of an instance where i've actually like called it by that name i also don't you know ever want to like call out an organization one of the biggest things that i see that i think contributes to this like subtly toxic culture thing that a lot of people do unintentionally is how they communicate decisions that are made. And so it's very interesting to think about, you know, if you come into a room and say, I've made this just, okay. Like, I'm like, Alma, I found this restaurant, you know, let's get sushi. Are you interested? And I like already booked a reservation and put a down payment down. Right. (laughs) And you're like, no, I'm really feeling that Colombian food that I mentioned. Yeah. And I'm like, well, sorry, but like that's not really an option. It's like, why did you ask me for my input then?
1: Yeah, there's,
0: a, there's like how do right. you communicate something where you don't where you're not looking for input um mm-hmm. where you know, where you can say, we're going through this change. I'm here if you want to talk about these things or like, what concerns do you have, right? And yeah. then I think about the other end of it. It's like, if you're in a burning building, you're gonna be like, Alma, would you rather take like the stairs on the east side or the stairs on the west side? So it's like, there's <laughs> this like continuum of decision-making. And I think leaders who are not privy to that, and and honestly, most are not, get really hung up on that because they're like, I want to ask my team about it. It's like, but why would you want to solicit feedback on something that you can't do anything about? Yeah, And I think that that also contributes to that culture. Right. It's like, if I come to you and, and I know this is such a silly example, but I'm like, do you want, you know, like, are you in the mood for sushi? And you're like, no. And I'm like, well, it doesn't matter. That's what we're doing. <laughs> exactly. like, okay. Well, obviously like my weight doesn't mean anything in this, you know, so it's, yeah. it's like little things like that, where managers probably do not, and not, and I'm not even just saying managers, because honestly, how you communicate a decision is probably also part of the culture. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah
0: these little things that, that companies don't really know that they're doing, but it's like, when you know better, you can do better. And yeah. in those situations, I always ask people like, wh- how would you want to be communicated about a decision like this? Like we make these things so complicated, right? Like we're like, I'm going to like ask, I'm going to come with like 15 questions. It's like, you're a human being and you're talking to another human being. If this was you, what would you want? I'd want them to tell me the truth. Okay. Okay. Why don't we try telling? You? <laughs> yeah. like, Hey, Alma, I know that you totally might not be in the mood for sushi, but I totally forgot that I already put, you know, I put this down payment down, you know, whatever it is. And I, I can't get it back. And I'm, I'm so sorry. And I hope that that's fine am with you. And next time you can pick the restaurant. Okay. Isn't that such a better approach than being like, are you in the mood? No, I'm not. Well, too bad.
1: <laughs> it's such, that's a great example. I yeah. just
0: I wanted to go back to the Colombian food.
1: <laughs> yeah,
2: I mean, I I think it's interesting because ultimately, like the way to say to say that there's a toxic culture, right? That's not like a. I'm trying to think about how to phrase this, but you know, th- that's not a tangible thing. It's not like saying, and I'm holding a pen. This is a pen. Mm-hmm a culture i think and i'd love to hear what you think about this but it has to do with the perception of the people that are there especially when it's toxic right when it's not pleasant and i think what you're saying is really really important because ultimately it's made, the, the way we experience a place is made up of often very very small experiences that we have throughout the day how mm-hmm. someone talks to us you know a- anything uh, right. Uh in, in any way. So I think that's really, really important. And and what I find is that sometimes that is something managers are not really aware of because sometimes when they think about culture, they think about, oh, here are the perks. We have foosball in the break room. We have kombucha on tap. You know, we are so cool. And hey, I'm, you know, I'm all for the kombucha. Um, that's wonderful. But the way people actually experience culture is were you treating them with respect? How did you talk to them? How did they feel at the end of the day? Was Were they engaged in their work? You know, those are those are far more important than um, foosball.
0: Yeah, yeah. And the foosball thing, it's so funny because the last company I worked at had a foosball table and I was there for six years. And i the only time I ever touched it was probably like passing somebody in the hall, like unintentionally ran into it. But six years, never once. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The the interesting thing too about managers and one of the big things that I always ask when we do communication and that's always something that I do in in like leadership development workshops is who gets to assess how effectively the communicator communicates Mm -hmm. is it the sender or the receiver and it's always fun because there's usually a debate but I would would
2: obviously obviously it's the receiver. No, obviously
1: it's the sender. I'm kidding. (laughs) It's the receiver.
0: (laughs) It's really interesting because people are like, it really does usually spark like a good conversation. Right. And so then it's like, okay, let's take this to extreme terms. If you were playing catch, you would probably throw the ball to some, like I would throw it differently to Alma than I would like a two-year-old. Right. Yes. So like, Mm -hmm. if I threw a ball at, a two-year-old, like I would throw it at Alma, that's, that's my fault that they didn't catch it, right? Or, you know, thinking of like a sender and a receiver, if I speak to you perfectly in French, but you don't speak French, that's my problem. That's not your problem. So I know those are like very extreme examples, but it's really interesting to think about, like I have to think about the person who's in front of me so that I can tailor how I am showing up. And a lot of the times we don't do that. And that does contribute to culture, right? Like if you, I'm a very, I I have like what's called a facilitating style, but very, you know, like, I want to know how your weekend was. I want you to say hello to me. I want you to ask me if you come and sit down and you just like sit down and this is our agenda. I'm going to spend the next 30 minutes. I'm going to be orbiting like I'm going to think you're mad at me. And then I'm not (laughs) going (laughs) to do anything, right? So it's like, how can we think about the person who's in front of us? And the idea is not to become that person, but the idea is how do I take one step closer to you? And how can you maybe take one step closer to me? Okay, maybe we don't do small talk for 10 minutes, maybe we do it for five and then we start the meeting. But understanding the person who's in front of you and learning to communicate a little bit more in their style, that contributes to culture too. Yeah, 100%. It's complicated. It's hard working with humans. <laughs> Being a human
2: is hard. <laughs> I think one of the reasons why this is so challenging is because in a workplace, the job is to get the work done and that is the top priority uh, of everyone right and the the challenge is that um that we we don't really have I don't know if the, we, I don't know if we don't have time but we 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 don't do a lot of thinking about how we work we just mm-hmm. do the work and when we don't do that we all have our own kind of autopilot and yeah. that autopilot is combined with lots of things it's our own experiences it's how we were treated it's our own fears it's our own psychology it's our certainly our own narratives mm. probably you know that probably encompasses it all um <laughs> but 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 if but if we don't if we're not aware of them um mm. then it's very very difficult so I, actually what i'm what i'm what i'm really saying here is is that this is why i think the work that you do Shirin and hopefully the work that we're all involved with um is so important because what we're In essence, one of the things we're trying to do is say, let's pause for a second and let's think about how you're doing the work. And I get that you don't necessarily have capacity to do that because you're busy getting your work done, but that's why you brought me in here. Mm -hmm. And I'm I'm really happy to help you do that. Does that resonate?
0: Yeah. And McKinsey just put out this, um, report and they surveyed like 1500 companies, um, across various industries and they um, looked at them from like four different uh, categories. So they had people and performance, obviously it's like ideal and then performance driven companies and um, people driven companies. And then just like regular. So I don't know, like control, right. Yeah, robots. So- <laughs> but- robots. Well, so they looked at like performance from, I think they looked at it from 10 years. So if, For nine years you were like profitable they considered you like a performance you had like some performance based you know model and then they assessed people on three it was like rewards i'm totally gonna butcher it even though i was reading it last night whatever you guys can read the research the what they did then is looked at it on six subscales so they looked at um profitability the the companies that were performance focused and people in performance focused were the same in terms of profitability. Then they looked at profitability from a resilience perspective. So how do they deal with like volatility, Mm -hmm. COVID, and um, consistency? How likely were they to continue to perform? This was all based on profit, right? The companies who were people and performance-based outweighed all of the other companies on every single subscale the only one that they were like neck and neck with was performance-based companies on like the actual like EBITDA. And so it's like the data actually exists that if you do the work through the people, you are more profitable as a company. There's no doubt that you can be profitable and have a terrible culture and people who are miserable. The question is how much more profitable can you be? I mean, that's not why we should be doing the work, but (laughs) organizations do exist to make money. So like how much better could it be if people were engaged? If they were happy? If they were heard? If you know, I could rattle off a million things. So,
2: and and it's certainly not, and and you're certainly not worse off. That's the thing, also, right? Yeah. So,
0: right. well, I think that the idea is like, well, if we invest in people, it costs us money, and is there going to be a return? And it's like, yeah, there is going to be a return. And they found that the organizations that were people and performance based spent, I think it was 74 hours annually average some companies were like up to 120 hours on professional development. Hmm. So it's hmm. like yes it is an investment but then look at the return yeah. for the company. So I think people are like, "Well, if we spend money on it, you know, it's like you you maybe we will be worse off." It's like, "No, yeah. there's no data that supports that you're going to be worse off."
1: That's fantastic.
0: It's a really great study. I, I, You guys should read it. And I totally like butchered how they did it. But I read it last night and I was like, this is fascinating. And this answers every question I ever get asked about org change. Yeah. And I love it. I'm just going to, you know, send it to everyone now.
1: Yeah, it's the report we've been waiting for. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, like, I, I mean, honestly, it. <laughs> it's, it's like fascinating. It was in my newsletter today. No big deal. But God, now I know you great. didn't read it.
1: Of course I did, cause Julie sent it to me.
0: Oh, <laughs> Julie!
1: I read it on the bus over. Yep.
0: Oh my god! Really you guys. Good. Yeah. Nicest ever. What
2: What do you think this is? <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, so I I know we're we're probably nearly out of time, but I I'd be remiss if we didn't ask you about Gen Z. You write and you do a lot of work with Gen Z. Who are they? Why do you care about them? <laughs> yeah what's the story?
0: Guys, yes. Gen Z, like, they have it rough. I genuinely feel, I genuinely feel <laughs> actually very bad for them. If you think about, like, how the rap that, like, millennials got, right? Like, yeah. oh, so entitled? We've done this same song and dance every time a new generation enters the workforce. So, like, I'm perplexed by why organizations are so perplexed, but nonetheless, here we are. And it's great because that's what keeps us in business. But yeah. Gen Z, so, God, there's just so Wait, much. Can we,
2: can we start with, with definition? What year do you have to be born in to be considered Gen Z? Oh, yeah.
0: Honestly, there's a lot of different, like...
2: Oh, it's already controversial.
0: <laughs> it, it honestly is. No, it really is, like, very controversial. There's... I mean, some people will say that it starts in like 96. I usually say 96, like January 1, 96, you Gen Z. Um, it could end in 2012. Some people are like, well, it's still going on. So let's just say, for the sake of this conversation, we'll say through like 2012. Okay. So a lot of these people are entering the workforce right now. And first of all, they're dealing with like the backlash that we've all dealt with as millennials, like, oh, you're so entitled, you're so blah, blah, blah. But there's so much more about them that companies don't understand. And I think one of the issues is they're like riding on the back of millennials. And as millennials, yeah. we were job hoppers. So, you know, if we didn't find what we were looking for, we were we were told to like seek passion and purpose and whatever, like we looked elsewhere. Gen Z, was, for the most part, raised by Gen X. So Gen X, also known as the Forgotten uh, Generation.
1: Who were and- they? <laughs> <laughs>
2: oh, I forgot about them.
0: They like right. entered the workforce and were like starting families, buying homes during the 2008 recession, where, where most of them lost over 50% of their income. So growing up as Gen Z, and I think the, the oldest Gen Z at the time, would have been nine or 11 and growing up in you know with those conversations around the dinner table that's really different than how I grew up with boomer parents who were in like a booming economy who were like oh passion and like love your job and you know it's possible and whatever it's like they grew up being like jobs are for money and so as a result of having that rhetoric growing up that narrative right jobs are for money and like this company owes me nothing they're way more serious they're way more stressed Um, they have a totally different view of what jobs are. And so they're willing to give loyalty to organizations, but the right organizations. And so it's really interesting because right now, one of the biggest issues is they're looking for professional development, but organizations are still thinking about the millennial aspect of like, well, why should I invest in early development if this generation is going to leave? It's like, but they're not going to leave if you give them what they need. So, There's just, they're like totally keeping employers on their toes and they can't retain them. They can't, they can't even, they can't recruit them. Forget about retaining them. They can't recruit them. And then when they do recruit them, they're finding that they've been like duped. And so eight in 10 think it's okay to leave an organization within six months if the job is not as advertised. I have been duped by a job before. I assume the two of you have been duped by a job description before.
2: I mean, duped. I I don't take job descriptions seriously. I mean, I hope no future well, employers are watching this, but I know that that's just what they think they need, or they might need, or they got someone to write. So I, I, yeah. Anyway, but yeah, certainly I've been in jobs where, you know, was not as advertised.
0: Right. Well, and I think the other thing that's really interesting about Gen Z is they're the most diverse generation to date, and so nice. like twenty five percent of them are Hispanic, twenty percent of them are first generation college students. So. I struggled adjusting to the workforce. I know I'm, I'm very open with this story, but like when I walked into the workforce, they're like, EBITDA, P&L, you know, and I, I'm like, I know amygdala and like myelin sheath and like, I know how neurons, but like, I don't know any of these terms. I could go home and have a conversation with my parents who are both college educated and I still struggled entering the workforce. When you go home and your parents are not college educated, those probably are not the conversations that you're having. And as a result, like you already start as, you know, like there's already not a level playing field. And then you don't know how to get mentors. You, you know, you don't know who to turn to for these things. So it's like, that's a major piece of it. And a lot of this generation, only 20% have had part-time jobs before. So for me, like I worked in a karate studio, which is hysterical to anyone who knows me. I know. I just was like, washing.
2: Do, you, do you do karate? No,
0: no, no. I was like cleaning up after kids and like wiping the windows and whatever. But I started that at 16 and then I worked in retail and then I worked at a Pilates studio. And so it's like, I've always been customer facing. For Gen Z, a lot of them were told, you know, college admissions were down, competition was up, get the grades to get into the school and then get the grades to get the job. And so a lot of them haven't even had part-time jobs before. So when they're entering your organization- that's the first time they're ever dealing with customers might be the first time they're ever collaborating on something that's not a college project you know and so we're like oh they're so entitled they're such babies and it's like they're not like this is we if you have to like understand them to be able to have that sort of empathy for the scenario that they're in. And and then I'll stop talking about it for like 30 seconds. <laughs> they're the most stressed and most serious generation to date. And like if you think about this from you know, they they grew up with phones in their hands. Okay, well when we think about what that really means, think about like when our parents were growing up, they had to catch the news on the radio at six PM and oh by the way, it was like three days old, right? By the time you got that news. And <laughs> for us you know obviously it was more up to date but like my parents you know before we had DVR it was like we have to we have to catch the six o'clock news my mom still does that I don't know why but regardless they have like the information in the palm of their hands so like what's happening in Ukraine what's happening in other countries they're live streaming that right like they can go on Facebook live and see that actually happening it's not something where like you're just watching TV and it's like in this foreign country and you don't really know anyone there and you're never going to know anyone there. And it's, it's like, yeah, they grew up with that. They grew, they grew up, they were born after Columbine. Yeah. I would be serious and stressed too. If that's all I knew, you know? So it's like, if we think about the generation and like the world that they've come into, none of this should be surprising. Hmm. So it's, I'm like obsessed with them. Cause I'm like, you guys are so misunderstood and it's so sad. And I had trouble adjusting to the workforce and you know, there were a lot of scenarios where I could have been set up to succeed better than I was, I think. Um, and the onus is on the organizations. I think it's a two way street, right? We're going to commit to setting you up to succeed. And in return, hopefully you are committed to succeeding. Yeah, if we yeah. don't set you up to succeed, and then you don't, we can't really be surprised.
1: Yeah, that's fantastic. So how are you taxed? So you're clearly very passionate. Um, uh, how are you tackling this? Like, what do you? What do you? You mentioned a class that you're doing, and what else are you yeah. trying to do to to help this generation and and organizations understand? Yeah.
0: So I have an eight week course that is the front half is essentially business basics, and so sort of the whole impetus for this was I was having a conversation with somebody, and they were like, "I'm managing Gen Z, and they're not up to speed, and this is just like crazy. I'm spending all this time doing it." So I did a ton of research. I interviewed gen z anybody who had joined the workforce in the last two years and then managers of people who had joined the workforce in the last two years and i basically asked like i asked gen z what do you wish you had learned sooner what could have been streamlined what were the biggest gaps and then same with managers like you know as a manager someone's like oh can i ask you a question for 15 minutes it's like how am i going to answer what EBITDA is in 15 minutes or like what PL is or
2: just for the record i do not know what EBITDA is honestly most people don't
0: most people don't know what EBITDA is and i think like there's this whole there's this whole idea of like gen z and millennials want to understand how they fit into the larger picture of an organization right so like not just a cog in a machine but when i do something how does it contribute to like how my company makes money how um you know like how i'm getting paid even little things like i got promoted why didn't you give me 30% it's like because we pull from a pool of money it's not just an arbitrary number it's like Even that framing is helpful, right? So like, how do businesses operate? And then this back half of the course is really, what does it mean to lead? What does it mean to lead myself early in my career? Mm -hmm. So how do I have difficult conversations? Because that's one of the things that I always hear, oh, Gen Z doesn't like conflict. Okay, well, how did you learn how to deal with conflict in an organization, right? Probably by happenstance, having a boss or seeing somebody do it. If you're not teaching them how to deal with conflict That's not really something they've ever dealt with before. Also, they may have never had coworkers before. So, how do we really the whole idea is like, how do we level the playing field for Gen Z? A, it's obviously a recruitment tactic, it's a retention tactic because we all know that professional development leads to retention. But also, your managers are the ones paying the price for Gen Z not being up to speed, right? It's like a lot of the managers I talked to were like, my day doesn't start till 3 p.m. because I'm answering like, the same questions over and over that could absolutely be streamlined. And so it's like, what are we doing? Especially in this economy where like, there's a labor shortage and there's a war on talent and all of these things. It's like, it's this whole idea of like, go slow to go fast. Like how do we get back to, I don't know, like how do we invest in people so that they can then in turn invest, return, invest in us as an organization?
1: Right. Hmm. So the course is for Gen Zers, but you go directly to the business. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So 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 it would be people within a business.
0: Yeah. So we talk about things at like a high level, right? So like, how do businesses make money? What are businesses here for? Also, how can you think about like businesses critically? How do I assess my organization? Even little things like Um, you can set up Google alerts for when your company is in the news or like when your competitors are in the news or when your clients are in the news, like, how do I think more critically about the things that I'm actually working on? Right. And so we, and then that part is also tailored. So then your company comes in and says, this is how our company makes money. This is how we operate. So, you know, normally in like an onboarding process, you're like, these are our tools. And like, this is our culture. And like, everybody gets like confetti and you're like, okay, first of all, 90% of that went over my head and it doesn't help me do my job at all. And so the idea is like giving this context and then back half, same thing. It's like, we talk about a lot of really basic principles like communication, leadership, um, even little things like time management skills, which I, you
2: know,
0: but um, inbox organization, if that's what a company wants, but then the company can also tailor that aspect of it too, to say like, these are the values or like, these are some of the things that we want to, Taylor, we can bring in panelists, you know. So it's pretty much like eighty percent baked, and then twenty percent like iterative to the company because the ideal is the the idea is that it should not be this huge heavy lift. So yeah, yeah. I had, and it's I, research, so can't refute the data.
2: <laughs> nice. <laughs> well, you could refute it with other data, uh, but no, no, not your well, data.
0: Let me know when you find it.
2: Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I, ha- I had an interesting conversation on Saturday with some friends um, and the topic was like, how important is content in school? Um, or, you know, another way to phrase it is what is more important? Is it, a, you know, is school really about content or is about or is it about skills? Um, and I'm curious about how you think about it when not not just with this Gen Z Workshop, but with all the workshops, like, of course, and there's no, everyone agrees that content is somewhat important, but right? no one thinks that you should be taught, um, you know, things that aren't true or things that are detrimental or, you know, anything. But um, how do you think, how do you think also about like skills? What kind of skills are you imparting on them? Or like, is there a way of thinking that you're trying to help them with? <laughs> or yeah, how do you think about that?
0: Yeah, I think that's a great question. And something that like, I try to be super, super, super intentional about because I've gone to workshops. Like anytime somebody hears like, Oh, workshop or training, they're like, Oh my God, the bane of my existence. Right. And it's like, if you have somebody sitting in front of you for two hours, if, if I go to a workshop and I don't walk away, learning anything about myself, which by the way, you, I mean, everyone is their own favorite topic. Right. So mm-hmm. the, like how do I make sure that you have some sort of, maybe not like epiphany, obviously epiphany is like this very dramatic word about it, but some element of self-awareness where I'm learning about myself in this session, how I show up, how I can better show up. Um, Definitely some element of that. And I think that the content is, the content is really a vehicle for doing that, right? Like What is it that's going to help people have that? So I do think it's way more about the skills, but it's working backwards. Like what kind of skills are we trying to master in this and what do we need to be able to do that? And Mm -hmm. how is the content going to fuel that conversation? So I don't ever start with a content. I always start with, you know, what are we, what are we trying to accomplish? What would success look like? Okay. What do we need to, what are the skills that we need to get here? What's the content that will help us have that conversation? So I think the content is important, but the content should be a vehicle to get to wherever you're trying to go, right?
2: Sure. Yeah. Because you could also give them the content like on a piece of paper or something, you know?
0: Right. And like, and it's funny because as an entrepreneur too, you know, you are buying, like, sounds really weird to say, but like you are buying me, right? Like you are buying my personality to come into your organization and like facilitate the discussion in the way that I'm going to facilitate it right? Yeah. Like anytime you're paying for somebody to come into a workshop, you're paying for that. I can give you all of the content. You can have somebody run it. I don't know how it's going to land, you know, like- Probably not that
2: great. Hire in immediately. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, okay. But, you know, I think it's, to your point, it's like, yeah, you can have all the content, but if you don't have like the skills to be able to also make it stick, Right. Like you yeah. somebody can show you a video and if, if that's it and you don't there's no reflection or conversation or whatever after it's like, okay, I just watched a video and now I'm gonna carry on with my life.
2: <laughs> Story of my life. Anyway.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Story of most workshops that you've probably been to. Yeah. No, you know, and I don't mean it in that in that way, but I think it's that idea of like, what are we trying to get to versus like starting with the content.
2: Very interesting. I feel like there's a lot more to unpack here. Maybe for a part two, Alma, yeah. you wanna, you wanna, you wanna go ahead with the last question.
1: Oh yes. Okay. So our last question is. It's <laughs> <laughs> been fascinating. We've wow, well, we've talked about a lot. It's been it's been fun. So our question is, dear Shireen, what have you been curious about lately?
0: Oh, what have I been curious about? I have been very curious about it's work related is that okay
1: sure is it supposed to be? it is it can be anything related but yeah
2: <laughs> yeah i mean it can be like how to get your cat to not to stop getting in the toilet i mean that's a, I
0: am really issue. curious yeah. about, about that I'm a little worried it's an old age thing but like i'll tend to her after this i'm i'm almost like i don't even want to tell people i'm curious about this cuz when adam grant hears this podcast then like he's going to do the research on it oh I, <laughs> Very curious about the role that culture plays in relation to managers. So I've been thinking a lot about, I know, I know, I know. No, no, it's no. no. Really I'm just important.
2: wondering if you read my capstone or not. And if so, yeah. <laughs>
0: hey, no, because remember I ghosted you because- like, yeah, but really solid I, fra-
2: I I erased that from my mind. No, anyway, <laughs> Wait,
0: I actually, I want to know, maybe this answers the question. Yeah, yeah sorry, go ahead. I want to, I'm I'm very curious in talking to people who have left an organization in the last, whatever it is, six months, what has more weight? Is it the relationship with the manager or is it a culture? So if I had a great relationship with my manager but I couldn't see myself progressing at the culture or like progressing within the organization because of the culture, because they don't promote professional development. Does that carry more weight than my relationship with a manager? Because I think there's so much um, Mm -hmm. emphasis and like pressure that we put on managers. Obviously there's that Gartner study that's like uh, 70 or Gallup study um, 70% of variance in teams is due to the manager, right? It's like, it's a lot of pressure for a manager, but a manager can only do so much. And so I've been spending a lot of time thinking about probably too much time thinking about that, honestly. (laughs) Uh, like how much weight does a manager really have versus a culture? Cause I've Mm -hmm. had good managers and the, not the previous job, but the one before. I had an amazing manager, but I left because I was like there's no, there's no progression opportunity for me here and I don't see myself here, right? And so I just hear from a lot of managers who are like, oh, I'm, you know, my team left and it's a reflection of me and it's like, is it a reflection of you if yeah, so those are very long-winded answer of what I'm curious about. and I yeah, I guess all I really think about is org stuff. so that's what I'm curious about right now.
2: <laughs> yeah I think I think that's a very interesting question and I it, but it it I have to say it didn't sound like so much like you were talking about culture because you know whether whether or not I can see myself at this company you know down the road or whether I think that there's that there are growth opportunities I'm not is that a culture question?
0: I think so. I mean I think culture is everything, right? It's like looking at the leadership team it's like do I want to be a leader here? That's yeah. culture.
2: Yeah. Right. Yeah. Is
0: there, Interesting. do you invest in your people? That's culture. So it's like, to what extent, like how much weight does a manager have? Because at some point there's stuff they can't control.
2: Yeah. 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 No, no. I, I totally get that. But like, I'm thinking of an example. Um, uh, uh, I was talking to someone recently who worked for a business that is owned by a family. It's very much a family business, but this person was not Part of that family, and so they knew that there is a ceiling to how high they could climb in this company because their last name wasn't, you know, whatever that whatever the last name was, Sater. No, yeah. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was waiting, but was like, I was say it." <laughs> um, um, but no, but but I, I think it's a great question. I think that's something that's that's really interesting uh, uh, to think about. And, and thanks for thanks for sharing that with us. And thank you yeah. so much for spending all of this time and th- and for sharing your wisdom and knowledge and uh your bringing, bringing your curiosity and sharing it with us and our millions of viewers all over the world
0: thank you and this was so fun this was like didn't even feel like a podcast i don't even want to hang up <laughs> <laughs> all right
2: I'm, I'm hanging up bye
0: hope adam grant doesn't grab my research and like run with it so maybe he'll
1: we'll invite
2: go. you to research with him yeah wouldn't you want aj to do that
0: um yeah but is AJ. he gonna invite me or like is he AJ. just gonna take it and i mean i'm not saying that he would do that but i'm like he's gonna anyway. be like wow such a brilliant brilliant idea shireen but <laughs> i'm gonna claim it as my own
2: yeah i mean adam first would quote about five and a half studies that are already out there and then he yes. would tell you and then he would sharpen the question and then mm. uh, and then he'd invite you